Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but but expose them, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the Church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Our friends, let's pray. Father, we praise you for the opportunities that we have had even over this lunchtime to speak the truth in love. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for uh, the way that you have brought us together. We thank you too for this great word of yours which does build us up. 
But we do pray that as we look at these final chapters of Ephesians, that you would continue to speak to us, to our hearts, uh, to change us by your Spirit and enable us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not long ago, uh, I walked into a cafe and while I was ordering, uh, I saw a newspaper sitting at the counter. Uh, the front page had one quite prominent story uh, on it and the story was about uh, brothels in Sydney and how there was some investigation into them. Uh, and the newspaper itself, I didn't look at all the details, but the newspaper itself uh, was showing a, a sort of moral outrage at these brothels for, um, quote, exploiting women. Uh, and I didn't go any further into it because I noticed a prominent picture at the top right-hand corner of the newspaper, uh, which was there. It was a picture of a woman in a bikini looking provocative and advertising a story in the newspaper. Turn to page 10 for more details. In other words, there was a picture of a woman's body using, being used to sell newspapers on the same page as that very same newspaper was expressing its own moral outrage about exploiting women's bodies for money. But friends, this is the world we live in, isn't it? A world where money and sex, sex and money often rules the day and yet at the very same time so often there is a world that we're living in a world that's full of outrage against injustices and exploitation and crazily often the ones doing the exploiting are the loudest in their denunciations. And sometimes it doesn't even seem to matter about truth or logic or consistency is what you're saying. The one who shouts the loudest is the one who wins. Of course, it's much worse than newspaper headlines, isn't it? There is real pain. There is real hurt. There is real darkness in our world. And when we're faced with the darkness of our world, there's two reactions we could have as Christians. On the one hand, we could react in fear. We could withdraw from the world and we could uh, hide from it and hide our children from it, just from the horribleness of it. And on the other hand, we could react by just trying to be like everybody else, assimilating, adapting so far that we are no different from the world and staying the same, so desperate that the world uh, listens to us or at least accepts us uh, that we change our message in our lives to be just like the world, which means, of course, that we have nothing to say in the end. What does have Ephesians have to say about our life in the world? Well, in fact, Ephesians chapter 5 has a lot to say about this. It doesn't tell us only to withdraw from the world, but it doesn't tell us to assimilate to the world either. It tells us something far greater because it tells us who we really are. And if we know who we really are, then we'll know how to be radically different from the world but to live in a way that makes a real difference for the Lord Jesus in the world. So Ephesians chapter 5 begins this way, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Who are we, friends? I ask you, who are you? What would your answer be? Well, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. That's who you are. 
You are loved. You are secure. You have a new life to live. And these first two verses are a guiding principle for what follows. It's about Jesus' death on the cross. Now in the earlier chapters of Ephesians, we've seen what Jesus' death on the cross is all about and what it achieved. Jesus' death on the cross uh, is a once-for-all sacrifice, a sacrifice that Jesus made where he gave himself up for us to bring the forgiveness of sins. It was a death that brought salvation. And in that sense, Jesus' sacrifice is something that, that he did that, that we could never do. By grace, we've been saved through, through faith. We've been made alive in him. It's something that Jesus did, not us. Jesus' sacrifice also brought peace, peace with God and brings peace with one another in chapter 2. And yet here we see that Jesus' death does something more because it makes us children of God and because it shows us God's love and what God's love is all about, uh, being brought into that secure and loving relationship with him, it actually gives us a pattern for existence. Jesus' death saves us and Jesus' death gives us a guiding principle for who we are. Being a child of God is being a child of love. A child whose life is love is lived in imitation of the Father. And that means sacrifice, like Jesus. When I was a, a child, I had to stay in hospital for uh, about a week. Uh, and after I'd been in the children's ward for a few days, uh, another child joined us, uh, much younger than I was. I was about seven or eight and this uh, child was about two. His name was Dean. And I know his name was Dean because it's, it's etched on my memory. Dean's, Dean's father was a truck driver. And I know that Dean's father was a truck driver because Dean loves trucks. He had a toy truck. And all day and all night, he would say, truck, truck, truck. And I actually was in the hospital with another friend of mine who had some, um, been dragged along by a horse and was actually in, in a hospital because of burns and he was sort of had, had burns uh, being dragged along. And at one point Dean wanted to get my friend um, interested in trucks. So he came up to his bed and started going, truck, truck, this was in the middle of the night. And that friend didn't respond. I think he was sleeping or just ignoring him. So he sort of grabbed the the table that was at the foot of the bed and sort of banged it into him and was going, truck, truck, truck. Now, Dean didn't stay too long in that hospital ward. I'm, I'm kind of happy about that. Um, uh, and I'm sure he grew up uh, to be a little bit more politic about him talking about trucks. But the thing is that Dean was a child of his father, wasn't he? And his father loved trucks. And so naturally, that's what Dean loved. Dean loved trucks. And that's the thing about children. They learn to love what their parents love. And so parents, that's true, isn't it? Something you certainly need to remember, we can't get away with hypocrisy. It just doesn't work. Your children don't necessarily learn to do what you tell them to do, but they will learn to love what you love. That's what they learn. It's what they pick up. In the early years, at least. So if you want your kids to have a hope of grow up loving, growing up loving certain things, the only way to do it is to love those things yourself. If we're Christians, whose children are we? We're children of God. And who is God? 
God is the creator of the world. God is the Father who sent his Son to lovingly die on the cross and sacrifice for us. That's what our Father is like. Not thinking of his own needs, but of us. And that gives us great security, doesn't it? We're children of God and nothing can take that away. So we don't need to be scared and, and, and run away, but we're told here to love, to sacrifice, to think of others above ourselves because that is the most God-like thing that we can do. And that is what children of God do. That plays out in a number of ways in, in chapter 5. Let me show you two important examples um, in the passage. In verses 1 to 21, Paul talks about our Christian lives in terms of light. Because we're children of love, we're also children of light, and so we should live in the world as children of light. You see verse 7 to 11. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Why is the idea of light so helpful as we think about living in this world? Well, we all know how light works, don't we? You, You turn the light on and the darkness disappears. That's why one of the best security uh, things you can do for a building, uh, security measures for a building, is to install lights. Because it's hard to do the wrong thing when the light's shining on you. And the light takes away fear too, doesn't it? I remember when I moved into a new house a while back, and in the middle of the night I woke up in a dark room. It was so dark, and I heard a horrible rasping sound outside, a <laughs> sound. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I went outside, didn't know what it was. It was scary. But I turned the light on and it was just a little possum down there. <laughs> That's the kind of noise they make. Paul says the world is darkness and we are light. The world is full of evil and often doesn't know it. That envy, that jealousy, that, that hatred, exploitation, greed, broken relationships, lust, drunkenness. Pain. That is darkness, but we are light. Not because we're good in ourselves, not because we're self-righteous that we build ourselves up, but because we are forgiven, because we know God's love for us. And we have the power and the security to love others as God's children. And that is light. And the thing about light is that it doesn't kind of fight the darkness, does it, in that sense. It doesn't, you know, you, the light doesn't sort of fight the darkness. When you switch the light on, there's just no contest. You know, you don't switch the light on and then wait for the light to sort of, you know, slowly overcome the darkness. It just overcomes it. Because what it does is it exposes the darkness. And the darkness goes. You can't actually make a lightened room dark by switching on the darkness, can you? You can only do it the other way around. Light exposes dark. And that is part of our job as light, to, to shine, to love others sacrificially, to love one another sacrificially, to love others sacrificially as our Heavenly Father loves us. Rather than taking part in the darkness, we don't need to, we shouldn't, we mustn't, we are to love. And that makes a huge difference. 
It actually exposes the darkness. Let me tell you a story about a teenager in our church. Um, I'm going to call her Christy. I've changed her name for anonymity, uh, so you don't know who she is, um, or particularly know who her friend is. Christy had a friend at school called Stacy, also a name I've made up. And Stacy uh, was a bully. Stacy had grown up in an abusive home, and she was taking it out on others at school. <clears throat> and what she was doing was she was systematically um, singling people out and lying about them and slandering them and turning people against that person and just doing it systematically, just out singlingly out of spite. It was difficult to know why. And the friends didn't really know how to react when, you know, when she was doing it uh, to them because she would turn on them and, and they didn't know where to, they were hurt and their whole friendship group started falling apart. But Christy knew Jesus and his love and the thing about Christy is that uh, she was in this friendship group uh, but because her identity was in Jesus, she knew that Jesus was the one who gave her everything she needed and that love. She had that security just to, to call it out. So she saw an act of bullying against a girl who was a friend of hers and she said to Stacey, you're doing the wrong thing, you shouldn't do that. So Stacey turned against Kirsty, which, which is exactly Christy. Sorry, I can't even remember what her name is. You know, I've just made it up anyway. But um, Stacey turned against Christy, uh, which is what you'd expect to happen. That's what, you know, and, and that is what happened. And she started telling lies about her and getting her excluded from the group. And it was pretty painful for her. Really hard. But instead of falling into line with Stacey, she just kept loving. She actually, she was sacrificing herself, do you see? She was sacrificing her own reputation and friendships for what is right. And do you, do you know what happened? After a while, Stacey stopped. She realised she was wrong. And she asked Christy if she could come to church with her. And, and she did. And She's come to church and has got to know people at church and heard more about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't happen every time, does it? But we need to realise how powerful being a Christian is in our world. How powerful it is if we are Christian, if we are living lives of love and sacrifice. And we are light because it is like light in the darkness. Speaking the truth in love together to one another but to our world will make a huge difference, a huge difference. As we speak of Christ and live out what it means to follow Christ. Now that does not mean that it will be easy or even that it will be accepted or even that uh, we will have a wonderful time of it or even that we'll have a, a nice end of the story like I just gave you. Sometimes it will not happen. but. We do have that security to do it and it will make a difference and people will see and people will hear. And it's so easy, isn't it, to fall in line with the fall into line with the world. Just to I guess to give into the world, to act just like the world. And it's true when it comes to relationships, it's true when it comes to the things this world loves. It is too easy, isn't it, to give in to lust. To give in to pornography when it's so freely uh, available now without even 
Uh, in the old days, it was, you know, available to buy. Now it's just available absolutely everywhere to drunkenness. And it's so easy to do that when people do not see that to lying and malice and cheating. It's easy to do that when we forget who we are. But when we remember who we are, remember we are children of God, children of love, children of light, this gives us the power to resist. And our job is not simply to condemn the world, but our job is not to simply agree with the world. Our job is to do what is right, and therefore we will be light, light in a dark world. And that will show how different we are and expose the darkness and bring it to light. Now another important example of how Christ's loving sacrifice makes a huge difference is there in verses 22 and onwards. And there we see that Christ's loving sacrifice transforms what marriage means. Christ's loving sacrifice transforms what marriage means. Verses 22 to 24 are about how wives are to submit to their husbands just as Christians submit to their loving sacrificial Lord and Saviour. Of course, that kind of teaching about marriage and order within marriages is so out of step with our world today, isn't it? You can so easily imagine another newspaper headline about these verses with a reporter expressing moral outrage at the teaching about women and how it's exploiting them or whatever it is. And we do need to realise that the exploitation of vulnerable people is real in our world. The exploitation of women is real in our world. And the uh, abuse of women um, and vulnerable people in different ways is so real. Sin is real. The Bible tells us sin is real. We should expect it, sadly. And so often it is true throughout our world that women are denigrated, that women are objectified, that women are, women are put down. And there are real and terrible power struggles in our world where men do often win, especially in marriages. Now this shouldn't be surprising for us if we know our Bibles because these terrible power struggles between men and women have been um, going on since the fall, Adam and Eve. Where men dominate, where women have to fight for the right to be valued, tragic result of the sin, uh, sinful condition that we're living in. Sin ruins things, it especially ruins our deepest relationships and it's real. Now, our world offers a solution to this problem. Our world says, oh, there's a, there's a simple solution to this problem. What we should do is deny that there is any real difference between men and women and then just be morally outraged when any time we see a hint of difference in role or order and that'll solve the problem, that's easy. And our world tells us if we just all stop saying that men and women are different, there's no order in marriage, so that will fix all of our problems and we'll all be happy, but it doesn't fix it, does it? It's still tragic. No matter how much we rail against injustice, it's still there. And the Bible's solution to this terrible problem, the Bible's vision is different to that. And the Bible acknowledges the problem is real, but it doesn't tell us to erase the differences. Instead, it tells us to transform marriage by imitating the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why this teaching about uh, this passage on women. It's not about subjugation. Uh, Submission is not the same as being subjugated. It's an active and voluntary placing of yourself 
in the order of relationship given by God on the on the basis of the love he has shown you in Christ and the security that you have in him, first and foremost. And that means living under God, promoting your husband, building him up, not tearing him down with your words, not manipulating him or telling him off in front of others. There's a number of things that that means. But did you notice that more space is devoted here to husbands? And I want to pick that up in particular because I think it is vitally important to talk about this uh, aspect of things. Verses 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, love your wives. Don't just feel love for them. That's important. But love them. What does love mean? Look to Jesus. It means sacrificially, deeply, as if she is your own body. Christ gave up his life. For us. And we are to do the same for our wives if you are married. No, not, not, not literally, except of course if it comes to that, it may come to that, to literally give up your wives, your life. This is about daily giving up your life, living for her good. Not living simply for your own. And do you notice something? That the passage majors on the element of nourishing and cherishing her like our own flesh because we are one flesh. And so this man is one of the clearest places in the Bible that teaches against domestic abuse, any kind of domestic abuse. It rules out men dominating their wives. So no violence, no threats. No attempt at control, no putting down, no manipulation, no hitting. You must, you must treat your wife like your own body. Domestic abuse is a direct contradiction of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is that serious. If you are someone who is caught up in a situation where uh, you are are committing a domestic abuse, you are wrong. And you must stop. You are not following Christ as a child of God. You need to stop it, to confess it to a brother, to receive help. Now, not all of us are married here, although this passage is still deeply applicable to us. But firstly, it's applicable to us because even if you're not married, you have a responsibility to help your married brothers and sisters, just as if you are married, you have a responsibility to help your single brothers and sisters. We're, we're a body of Christ here together. It's not like, you know, they're two different, completely different kinds of human being or anything. We must help one another. And of course, you might be married in the future. But it's also applicable to all of us because, in fact, there's a bigger reality that Paul reminds us of here. As he says in verse 32, this is not just about marriage. This is ultimately about Christ. Christ and the church. His relationship with his people. And our first task is for all of us to submit to Christ. Not because Christ is a terrible master who wants the worst for us, but because he's a loving, sacrificial Lord who gave up his life for us and he wants us to live as his children, children of God, children of light, secure in his care. 
and remembering who we are. And that brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flames and darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may, uh, so that you also may know how I am, And what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with with love incorruptible. Ephesians tells us who we are. It moves us to think about everything in light of God's great purposes through Christ, to lift our gaze to the spiritual realities. And that's what Ephesians chapter 6 is all about. It's full of heavenly and spiritual language. 
when I say spiritual, I need to explain what I mean because uh, often today the word spiritual uh, is used uh, by people um, to talk about something distant, you know, the opposite of the boring humdrum everyday life. That's spiritual. We talk about spiritual states and spiritual buildings, spiritual retreats to get away from everything. Sometimes you can hear people described as being too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. But other times we can talk about spiritual, we can maybe think that we're talking about spooky and weird things. Um, the, the kind of idea of spiritual warfare that comes from Frank Peretti novels, where you've got to look for demons everywhere and exorcism is the order of the day. But we have to remember that Frank Peretti books are fiction. They're not the Bible and we can't base our theology on fiction. Uh, we can't base our understanding of God on fiction. And that's not what this chapter is about. It actually doesn't mention exorcism at all. Now here in Ephesians, being spiritual or heavenly is actually about living our common, ordinary, everyday lives. But living those common, ordinary, everyday lives in light of God's great future when Jesus will return and all things are united under him. That's the point. It's not saying we need to escape our boring existence and hard struggles or get excited by spiritual powers. It's to realise that our everyday lives and daily struggles really matter because these struggles have cosmic significance. Firstly, Paul talks about earthly authorities in verses 1 to 9. He talks about two kinds of authority structures. Firstly, parent-child relationships, verses 1 to 4. Secondly, master-slave relationships in verses 5 to to nine. Uh, master-slave relationships were so widespread in the in the ancient world. It's got a, a lot of application to workplace relationships today, even though it's not exactly the same economically. And the big point in these verses is that we must relate to earthly authority in light of our heavenly master. We must relate to earthly authority in light of our heavenly master. And actually, in the original language, the word Lord is the same as the word master. And they're the same. That's helpful to know as you read that here. It's the same word. So see the instruction given to children in verses 1 to 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So here, children are told to obey their parents. But it's not just a, a, a bare instruction or a good idea. They should obey their parents in the Lord uh, or in the Master. One thing that's really interesting, I find, is that Paul goes out of his way to address children. Uh, Remember when when children were brought to Jesus and the disciples tried to turn the children away because children were seen as nothing in the ancient world. They were not important. Nobody would ever address them directly. but, But Jesus welcomed the children. And Paul actually talked directly to them. He believes that God's Spirit is at work in 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 them um, in 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 these little ones somehow, so that they are able to hear and do this command to obey their parents. It's like a little children's talk or something. And Paul calls the command the first commandment with a promise, because it's one of the ten commandments. Paul points out that it's actually a particularly significant commandment. It's not actually the first commandment with any promise at all. There are other commandments that have some kind of promise attached. But the point that he's making is the first commandment relating to the particular forward-looking promise of land, inheritance and blessing. If you remember back to chapter 1, 
That's the promise that Paul says we share in Jesus Christ. What's the promise? It's the promise of eternal life. The promise of an inheritance among God's people. And in the Old Testament, that promise of land and blessing was pointing forward to that great promise of inheritance to Israel, was pointing forward to that great promise of inheritance in the heavenly realms. And so that's why Paul says here, this is the first commandment with a promise, because it is a commandment that's particularly applicable. The promise of heaven, the promise of blessing. We have all those spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly realms. That's why he says, so that you may live long in the land. I mean, they're not living in the land. They're living in Ephesus. Uh, but the point is, that he's quoting from that promise of land that points forward to the promise of that eternal future. So when Paul says to obey your parents in the Lord and then talks about a promise and then talks about living long in the land, it's not the land of Israel he's talking about, it's, it's eternal life. He's saying to children that the way they can honour Jesus Christ as Lord is by doing the right thing when their mum and dad tell them. That's how to honour the Lord because it's not just about their mum and dad. It's about living a whole new life of good works that God has prepared in advance and living life now in light of those spiritual realities. So kids tidying their room when their parents tell them is the way they can honour the heavenly Lord. But parents, if you're here as a parent and you want to use this verse as a way to guilt trip your kids, uh, you need to stop doing that because it's addressed to them This isn't a thing addressed to you. But parents, especially fathers, have a different instruction. You need to act like the Lord Jesus towards your kids. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So notice this, this command is especially directed at fathers, although mothers are involved too. But I think dads need to hear this command directly, don't we? We have a a special responsibility to bring up our kids in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And actually the phrase bring them up literally feed them. (laughs) It says nourish them. Saying fathers don't let your children starve. But what are they in danger of starving from? A lack of love and discipline and instruction in the Lord. That's the main thing they're in danger of starving from. Sometimes, fathers, we can be absent physically and emotionally and we can sometimes justify our absence by saying that we're providing for our family. But if we're not with our family or not taking responsibility as much as we can, given the pressures that we face to teach our kids and lovingly guide them from the Bible, we're not if we're not actually praying with them, if we're not actually deliberately sharing God's word with them in the way that's best for them, then we're not providing for our family in the way that matters the most, are we? So fathers, don't let your children starve. And don't make it all mum's responsibility. If you're a dad, if you've got kids, do you need to share your life and God's word more with your kids. How will you do that? What will you do? What do you need to put into place to make that happen? And mums too. But it's particularly addressed to dads here. It's something for us to hear in particular, it seems. Now the same is true of workers and masters. And again, the idea is that we need to think of our everyday earthly work in light of our heavenly master, our our Lord. Here in Ephesians 6, Paul addresses the very common situation of bond servants, of indentured slaves. So he says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, 
with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will is to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. I wonder if, if you are at work, do you think of work that way? Is that how you think about your work? Is that your attitude to your work? No matter how hard it is, no matter how boring it is, it is actually the way that you are to serve your heavenly master, your heavenly Lord, your heavenly boss. It matters. So stealing from the boss is stealing from the master, the Lord Jesus. And your genuine faithful, just getting on with work is the key way to serve your heavenly master. And in that sense, it has that eternal significance. Now, you may be in, if if you are in a work situation, you may be in a different kind of work situation where you're more of a boss than an employee. Or maybe you're a bit of both. Again, there's this word to bosses. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. So workplace fairness, workplace safety, justice, not taking bribes, not showing favouritism, not using your position to get ahead at the expense of others. This isn't just the right thing to do, it's acting in line with your heavenly master. It's being a Jesus kind of boss. And remember that the greatest way that Jesus showed his lordship was by sacrifice and by love and giving himself up on the cross. The second half of Ephesians 6 talks about this truth on an even bigger scale. We we zoom out again close to the end of the letter to be reminded of God's big picture, of his great plan for the universe through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember how we've seen that God's plan is huge. We saw that at the start of the letter, the personal, the social, the international, the cosmic dimensions of what is going on through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where we come back to here because as we hear the gospel, as we respond to the gospel by trusting in Jesus Christ and as we seek to live for him in our daily lives, as we struggle to be godly, as we struggle to speak the truth in love, even though we really want to speak and act for ourselves, as we struggle to remain sexually pure, even uh, though that destructive pornography beckons, as we struggle to... Uh, not be malicious, not to gossip, not to envy other people, as we struggle to love our wives and husbands in the face of our own selfishness and our own sin, as we struggle to, whether we're children, obey our parents, parents, dads love their children, to be a good worker, a fair boss, as we struggle in those areas of lives and all these other areas that we struggle in. They are real struggles. But Paul says they're not just earthly struggles. No, we must view our earthly struggles in light of God's spiritual warfare. And finally, verse 11, be strong, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yeah, this isn't some new thought that Paul has just added at the end of his letter to the Ephesians. It's not like he's saying, oops, I forgot to tell you about spiritual warfare, now I'm going to talk about it. No, here at the end of Ephesians, Paul is reminding us of the things we've already seen about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and our response to him all the way through. And he's saying, 
we need to remember that all those things are spiritual. It is spiritual warfare. It's part of a great spiritual battle. Verse 14, fastening on the belt, belt of truth. A reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is described as the word of truth. That Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, speaking the truth in love. It's not just a nice idea or a good thing to do. It's a weapon against Satan's forces. Verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. What's righteousness? It means living right lives, living the right way, loving people, obeying parents. Verse 15 mentions feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Referring to Isaiah 52 in the Old Testament where the prophet says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who pro- proclaim the gospel, who bring good news of happiness, who proclaim salvation. The gospel of peace is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that brings peace and the feet are the feet of those who speak that message. So this is about believing the gospel and standing in the gospel. It must be about speaking the gospel in some way too, mustn't it? To know it so well, to love the message, that we're ready to speak it as well as take it to heart and live for it. Do you know the gospel? How well do you know it? You need to know it more, to talk about it, to read the Bible more, to be saturated with God's word more and more so that you can stand and so that your feet are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You know, that the best evangelists in our world aren't really the ones who are good at public speaking. The best evangelists in our world are the ones who just know the gospel and love it and love people. They love Jesus, they love people, and they know what Jesus has done for them and they know that gospel. So the gospel oozes out of them in their speech and in their lives. There's the shield of faith in verse 17. We respond to the gospel believing in Jesus Christ. The one thing that Satan must hate above all else is when people trust Jesus, have faith in him and hold on to him through thick and thin. The helmet of salvation, our security in the Lord Jesus Christ that we spoke about in chapter 2, knowing that we're safe from God's wrath and from anything the world can send against us and safe from the powers. That's what salvation is described as in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. One of the great things that demolishes strongholds is God's Word. God's Word that brings people to come and know Jesus Christ and live uh, for Him. God's Word that tells us how to live even in our everyday lives. So see, here he's talking about how our struggles as Christians aren't something strange. And we will struggle and we do struggle. It's not wrong to struggle. In fact, I want to go as far as to say it's wrong to not struggle. That's the problem. If you're a struggling Christian, good. If you're a Christian who's given up struggling, that's the problem. We need to struggle in our lives against these things because it is what happens when we take part in God's great plans for the universe in Christ because God's plans are cosmic plans and they involve cosmic powers and they're part of great God's great plans when all things in heaven and on earth will be united under Christ and we're caught up in that struggle as we seek to live for the gospel, hold on to it, live it out and speak it. So it shows how important our Christian struggles are, doesn't it? Even when they seem mundane or when we want to give up. It's about standing firm in a battle. Now, it is about standing firm, notice. Uh, It's not necessarily about 
kind of advancing in the battle. Paul's talking about just stand firm in battle. Why is that? Because it's not a hopeless battle. In fact, it's a kind of battle that's more like a mopping up operation. It's a battle that's been won for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Paul's spoken about how Christ is risen, how he's victorious, how he's above every power. And chapter 4, verse 10, how Christ has ascended above all. He has ascended. He is victorious. He's won it and he will return. And when he returns, it will be glorious. And he will be seen as the victor. So it's not like we don't know who's going to win. It's not like we don't know who has won. He has won. We're on the winning side. So our main job is not to have to go out and conquer anything, but to stand firm. To stand in the territory that Christ has already captured for us. And yet it's hard and we need to keep remembering it has a cosmic dimension. What what struggles do you have at the moment? What struggles do you have? Is it a matter of truth? Is it a matter of knowing the gospel? Is it a matter of righteousness? Is it some area where you need to live out that truth rightly? Is it a deep struggle to do with what God says about your sexuality? Is it about being embarrassed in front of others because you don't want to share Jesus because you're afraid of them? Is it a matter of faith? Is it a matter of trusting God when it's tough? Sometimes we want to give up, don't we? The world says our struggle isn't worth it. It speaks the lies of the devil. It tells us just to give up. But when you struggle, you know you're alive and fighting. We need to be struggling Christians. Otherwise, we're just going with the flow. And as a pastor of mine once uh, said, even a dead dog can swim with the current. Now the struggle matters, and it matters in the cosmic plane. And God sees, and knows, and he cares. There is a master in heaven who knows and loves you. And above all, we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray. Pray. Pray for what? Pray for little things. Yes, pray for little things. We should pray for our own personal struggles. We should pray for children, fathers, wives, husbands, friends, colleagues. We should pray concerning our desires and our life. And pray that in all those things we'll stand firm and be strengthened by God's Spirit. And we should also pray for big things because these little things are big things anyway. We should pray for big things, for God's great plans to go out and be fulfilled, for missionaries like Paul to preach, to be bold, and for us to be strengthened to take part in God's great plans for the universe through his Son, Jesus Christ. So shall we pray? Father, we praise you that you have made us part of your great plan for the universe and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for the gospel of salvation, which is our only hope for peace. When things look discouraging, help us to set our sights on your great plans through the gospel. Help us by your spirit to walk in line with your plans, to speak the truth in love. Enable us to act as your dearly loved children, to imitate your son's loving sacrifice on the cross, to be light in this world and in our struggles. Help us to cling to you and to stand firm. And we pray for boldness for us, for others, that this gospel would go out into the world and that you would use us as light in the darkness 
to see your plans come to fulfilment, to unite all things in heaven and earth under your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the strength that only Jesus provides. In his name. Amen.